Uh, go ahead and take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Revelation. Uh, my name is Robert. I'm one of the, the pastors here at the church at Blue Ridge. And uh, we are in the middle of a sermon series that we've called Apocalypse. Uh, not uh, crazy, end of the world, run, zombies are coming apocalypse. But uh, what the Bible means by apocalypse, which is this idea of an unveiling and a, a revealing. We're, we're asking God to help us see the world through heaven's eyes in light of all the, the craziness and the, the madness that might make us feel like the end of the world is coming, right? Uh, coming tomorrow. Um, how, does, how does God see the world? How does He see um, our lives in light of, of all that is all that's going on? That's the uh, the question that, that we've been asking. We, we started in the book of Genesis and looked at kind of these, uh, these first things, the, the, the beginning of the world, creation, how God made the world in order to understand um, how he sees it now. We needed to look at how he created it, what he intended it to be. And, and now we've made the jump to, to, to Revelation to see um, what God would say to us to um, in light of, uh, of what's going on. We, we've been looking at, at these letters to, uh, to churches in the book of Revelation, um, asking God to, uh, to help us see the world uh, through heaven's eyes. And so uh, we're, we're almost finished with, these, uh, with the seven churches. After today, we'll have one more church left, and then uh, we'll finish out um, our apocalypse series with chapter 20, chapter 21, and chapter 22 in Revelation. But this morning... Uh, we're going to look at the church at Philadelphia. So the church at Philadelphia, Revelation chapter 3, um, uh, verse 7 is where I'll begin reading this morning. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The letter uh, to the church at Philadelphia, it belongs kind of in the, the same category, if you will, with the letter to Smyrna. It's um, actually the, only, uh, the second of only two churches that receive a letter from the Lord Jesus and are not chastised. They're not rebuked in any way. So just like Smyrna, Philadelphia, they were poor, they were unimpressive, and by all worldly standards, we would, we would probably categorize them as weak. But what's most interesting about uh, Philadelphia, Smyrna, and really in general, 
all seven letters. What's interesting about them is that when you consider all of the churches to which Jesus sent a letter, it's the ones that we would most likely consider successful, at least on the outside, right? It's the ones that we would consider successful that Jesus says are actually dead or dying. That's interesting. And yet, for poor, powerless, tiny little Philadelphia, Jesus has nothing but praises in the text that we just read. Nothing but praises. Weakness is not something that you and I are particularly fond of, is it? Right? That's what Jesus says of the church of Philadelphia. I, I know that you're weak. I know your weakness. And we're not particularly fond of weakness. We dislike it so much that we expend massive amounts of energy and resources as a culture to avoid it. We like to avoid it at all costs. Uh, case in point, uh, your local gym makes a living off of the fact that at least in part, you believe, we believe, all of us, that, that physical strength and beauty that it it gives us some sort of power. Every hardware store, another example, every hardware store within miles this weekend was sold out of generators on Thursday evening because people like me, suckers like me, decided that they would never again be caught without electrical power. But but here's the deal with all those people like me going to buy a generator. It, It was less about electrical power and more about the fact that I swore I would never again, be at the mercy of a storm and a power company that's not getting my power back on as soon as I want it, right? That's what it was really about. It was about weakness. I don't want to be weak. I don't want to be weak. And and by the way, every store, Harbor Freight, Home Depot, Lowe's, every store, Tractor Supply, they were all sold out. I couldn't find a generator, right? Thankfully, my father-in-law let me borrow one. We were able to keep the refrigerator going. No, No one likes to feel weak, No one likes to feel like that we don't have the capacity to get what we want or need. That's a good definition of of power, the capacity to get what we want or what we need. And no one likes it when we don't have it. No one wants to be the ugliest, worst dressed, least educated, ill-prepared, poorest person in the room. All of those things are about weakness. But, But here's the deal. As students of the Bible, we're faced with the reality that in general, in general speaking, weakness seems to be the position from which Jesus calls the church to operate, right? It's the position he calls us to. Think about this. Jesus said things in the Bible uh, like this, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That doesn't sound like very, a lot of power, a lot of strength there. Or he says things like, camels have a better chance of passing through the eyes of needles than rich people have of entering the kingdom of God. Now to be fair, right, to be fair, the Bible primarily speaks of weakness in spiritual terms. It talks about spiritual weakness. That's what, um, to be poor in spirit means to recognize our, our spiritual poverty, to be humble before God, right? And, and there are many examples in the Bible where uh, God's people are actually quite powerful, They're quite powerful. Adam and Eve were given incredible power in the garden. We saw that several weeks ago when they were given the responsibility of stewarding the earth. Adam actually named the animals. Moses possessed the power of leadership and led God's people out of Egypt in the Exodus. Solomon's power, King Solomon, his power came through uh, great wealth and great wisdom. Peter was called the rock of Christ's church. And these were clearly powerful people. So, so what are we to think about power and weakness then? How are we to understand it? Our culture considers weakness a, a liability, doesn't it? We've already kind of talked about that. It, we worship power. We can be tempted to worship. 
worship it. We're, we're actually going to be studying this idea in our cell group journals. And I would encourage you, if you haven't picked one up, you can stop by guest services on the way out. It's going to be a great, a great study. Because we do, we worship power. We worship people with power. These are the people that we idolize. Some folks that I thought about this weekend, um, Jeff Bezos and all of his wealth. He's worth like something like $12 billion. He's a powerful man. Women of great authority, right? Think about Supreme Court, the brand new Supreme Court Justice, Amy Coney Barrett. Or incredible athletes like LeBron James and Michael Jordan. These men, these women, they have, they have power because of their talent, their money, whatever it is. They have power and we idolize them. We long to be like them, to have the things which give them the ability to get what they want. We say things like, man, if I just had all that money like Bezos or all that authority like Barrett, all of my, li- all of my problems would be solved. Maybe we don't say those things out loud, but, but functionally we believe them. We believe them if we're honest. And see, now we're starting to get at the heart of the problem with power and weakness. And I promise this is going to connect to Revelation 3. To, to have power, according to Pastor Kevin DeYoung, is to be in a position of strength, right? The definition that I gave it, that you're going to see in the, the cell group journal that others have given it, is this capacity to be able to get what we want. To, to have power is to put us in this position where we are tempted to rely on our own strength, on our own ability, and tempted to say, you know what, I don't really need God. That's the problem with power and ultimately weakness. It turns out, as with most things in life, I'm coming to learn, the problem with power and weakness can be explained in a country western song. Lady Gaga was such a hit a couple weeks ago, I figured we'd try a little country music. Johnny Lee, try this out. Johnny Lee wrote this chorus. Well, I've spent a lifetime looking for you. Singles bars and good time lovers were never true. Playing a fool's game, hoping to win, and telling those sweet lies and losing again. I was looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many faces. We've all been playing a fool's game, looking for power in all the wrong places. Money, knowledge, physical strength, beauty. But true power ultimately comes from God. And he only offers it, we're going to see, he only offers it to the weak, to the needy, and to the humble. Power, it turns out, is not found in exalting ourselves as we're accustomed to do, right? As sinful, fallen men and women. But power is not found in in exalting ourselves, but it comes in taking the low place in submitting to God. This is is exactly what Paul was teaching um, regarding his own weakness in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 through 10. Listen as I read it. But he, the, the Lord Jesus, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect. In weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of all my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I am content. For the sake of Christ, excuse me, verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, Paul says, then I'm strong. Turns out that the weakness of the Philadelphians and the church in Sardis, it turns out that their weakness, all their suffering, all their poverty, all the persecution that they experienced, those things were actually the perfect opportunity for Christ to work his power through them. And ultimately, our weakness is the perfect opportunity for Christ to work his power through us. 
Now, we don't know a ton about the Philadelphians. It's another one of the churches that we just don't have a ton of information about. Other than they were a people like Paul, they had become content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, and calamities. Now, um, in what is the, the modern day country of Turkey, this ancient city of Philadelphia was known as the, the gateway to the east, right? It was, it was relatively an important city in regards to, to feeding the empire and defending it. The, the soil around the city was, was volcanic soil, therefore it was rich, and grapes grew really well there. They grew really well there. But, but living next to an active volcano, that comes with you know, the volcanic soil around it, that comes with some drawbacks, right? Namely like eruptions, lava, and earthquakes. And so one earthquake actually leveled the city, and they were, uh, the, the inhabitants were forced to move out into the countryside. So they had to abandon their homes if they had homes left at all. And they, they lived in the countryside outside of the city out of fear of aftershocks. So the, the, the believers in Philadelphia, they probably even fared worse in this natural disaster because um, unlike other inhabitants of the city, they faced persecution, as we read in our text. They, they were persecuted by a group of Jews that were so vile, so wicked, that Jesus actually calls them the synagogue of Satan, right? That's, a, that's an interesting title, the synagogue of Satan. If we could visit their church today, we would find them weak, their congregation small, their budget probably even smaller. It's hard to build wealth when you lose everything in an earthquake and are being harassed and persecuted by people who claim to be God's people, right? But in the midst of their weakness, Jesus was working his power. And that's kind of the, that's not kind of, that's the main idea that, that we're running after this morning, that Jesus works power through our weaknesses. And to help us see it, right, I've divided the text up into five promises that we're going to work through relatively quickly. Five promises for the Philadelphians and ultimately for all of us that show us that Jesus works power through weakness. The first is the promise of an open door, if you're taking notes. The second is the promise of vindication. The third is the promise of protection and trials. The promise of stability is number four. And the promise of belonging is number five. So five promises, and we're gonna, there'll be slides for each of them, so you'll, you'll see them more in just a moment. We're gonna take them one at a time this morning. First, the promise of an open door. The promise of an open door. Jesus, he opens the letter as always with a, a self-description. He's the, the holy one. Well, what does it mean that, that he's the holy one? This is a, a term that's used frequent in the Old Testament. And it's for God, designating him as, as blameless, right? As set apart from the world and the only one worthy of worship. God is holy, but here Jesus takes the name for himself. Jesus is the holy one. And he's also the true one, the true one. This could refer to Jesus' authenticity, right? Or his genuineness as the Messiah. He's not a fake Messiah. He is the real deal. And and an important truth for this group of folks whose relationship with the Jews in their city was so tenuous, right? Because they were being questioned by the rival Jews. They couldn't, they couldn't possibly belong to God, right? They couldn't possibly believe in the, the true God. No, Jesus says he is the true, authentic Messiah. But in a different sense, this idea of true can also mean faithful, Facing persecution and calamity, the believers in Philadelphia surely needed someone they could count on, right? Everyone else had likely abandoned them and written them off as, as unimportant and nobodies. But Jesus says he's the faithful one, the true one, the one that they can count on no matter what. 
Jesus also declares himself to be the one possessing the key of David. Now, what's that about? The the key of David. Once again, this this is a a term that has rich Old Testament allusion. Um, It connects specifically to Isaiah chapter 22. In Isaiah 22, I'm just going to tell you about it briefly. God decrees that, that he is going to remove King Hezekiah's trusted, most trusted advisor. Think about uh, like a vice president or a secretary of state. God's going to remove Shebna from his position in Hezekiah, the king of Judah, in his, in his council. And he's going to replace Shebna with this guy named Eliakim. And Eliakim's new position meant that his authority in the kingdom would be second only to King Hezekiah's. When when Eliakim spoke, he spoke and made decisions for the king and with the king's authority. And Eliakim, his great power is made clear in verse 22 of Isaiah 22, where um, Isaiah writes, and I will place on his shoulder, God's saying, "I'm I'm gonna place on Eliakim's shoulder the key of the house of David. There it is again. He shall open and none shall shut and shall shut and none shall open. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? If Eliakim held the keys that unlocked and locked the front gate of Israel, Jesus is saying here in Revelation chapter 3 that he's the one who holds the keys to the front door of God's kingdom, to the front door of salvation, if you will. And what he's opened, no one can shut. For the believers in Philadelphia who had likely, they'd been thrown out of the synagogue, they had the door slammed in their face, Jesus promises them an open door, an open door into God's kingdom and into heaven that no one can shut. No one can lock, no one can close this door except Jesus. Perhaps the false Jews in their city were, uh, were saying that the Christians didn't belong because um, they, uh, they didn't follow all the rules. They didn't, uh, they didn't come to church uh, with their lives cleaned up. Right? They weren't giving enough. They weren't tithing enough. Jesus says, no, the door that I've opened, the door of salvation, it is always open. It is always open to the humble and to the weak. It can never be closed. Do, do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like you don't belong because following Jesus surely should not be this hard? Ever wondered how you're still wrestling with the, the same sin, the same struggle today that you've had for 20 years? Anybody ever feel that way? You ever wake up in the morning and go to pray and read your Bible and you sit down, you drink your first sip of coffee and you just think to yourself, man, I, I don't even know if I believe this stuff anymore. You ever feel like Jesus wouldn't dare let you in his kingdom if he knew how weak and how broken you are? He knows. He says he knows right here in Revelation 3. He knew the believers in Philadelphia were, were keeping his word. They weren't denying his name. He knew that, but he also knew that they were getting kicked around in the process. Anybody ever feel like you're getting kicked around in the process of following Jesus? That they they were struggling with temptation and difficulty, wrestling with doubt as they suffered. Jesus knew that, and it turns out that this weakness, their brokenness, those were actually requirements for entering the kingdom. The stage upon which Jesus wanted to exercise his great power in them, the door is always open to the humble, the broken, and the poor in spirit, those who will recognize their spiritual poverty and trust in Jesus' power. Maybe, maybe you have never believed the gospel this morning. You've never repented of your sins and trusted in salvation, trusted in Jesus for salvation. 
Are you broken over your sin this morning? Are you, are you broken? Are you willing to confess it to Jesus, to repent of it, to turn away from it, and believe that Jesus has offered you a means of salvation? If you are, Jesus says the door is always open to you. It's always open. It can never be shut. Second, Jesus promises the Philadelphians vindication. He promises the Philadelphians vindication. Look again at verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. The Philadelphians were, they were being persecuted by this group of Jews who claimed to belong to God, but Jesus says, Don't, no way, they're flat out liars. Just like at, at Smyrna, this, this group of false Jews had rejected Jesus as the true Messiah, as the Messiah, and, and they're persecuting the Christians for following him. In John 8, 31 through 47, the Jewish leaders, they, they claim to be God's people. If you were with us a, uh, about a year ago, we were walking through John's gospel. You probably remember this passage, right? The ethnic Jews, the, the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day, they, they claimed that because they were Abraham's physical descendants, right? That they were a part of God's people. And you know what Jesus does? Jesus condemns them. He condemns them for such an accusation. Jesus knew exactly who these men were claiming to be God's people because they were descendants of Abraham. And he calls them by name. He calls them children of the devil because they had rejected him. That's, that's ultimately who belonged to God, those who have believed in Jesus. Likewise, Paul can write in, in Romans 2, verses 28 through 29, that the physical signs of, of being a Jew, right? They don't mean anything. Those don't mean anything. Only those who have been changed inwardly that is, they've had their heart changed by the Messiah. So, so here, Jesus promises the, the Philadelphians that, that he's going to vindicate them. He's going to show them that they're, they're right. He's going to set the record straight regarding who's in and who's out. Now, now some have, have understood this passage to, uh, to refer to uh, a great day of evangelism for the Jewish people who have denied Jesus. They see it connected with the open door in verse 8, pointing to this opportunity for the Christians to evangelize their, uh, their Jewish counterparts. Uh, they connect it with other verses in Revelation which talk about uh, the Jews coming to faith in Christ. But, but I don't think that's what's going on here. Primarily because Jesus promises that, that these Jews are going to come and they're going to bow before the feet of the Christians. So this, this can't be an act of, of worship, Right? This, this has to be an act of, of submission. Jesus is promising he's going to set the record straight. A day is coming when, when the Jewish people, when everyone who persecutes those who follow the slain lamb, a day is coming when all will know once and for all who God truly loves. That's the second promise, vindication. The third promise is that, uh, that Jesus gives the Philadelphians is, is for protection. Protection in the midst of trials. Look at verse 10. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. This verse is one of the most controversial verses in the entire book of Revelation. Honestly, it's one of the most controversial verses in the entire Bible. Some see it as the single most important passage supporting the idea for an end times rapture. However, some things to consider here. The, the pronoun my there 
it actually fits better with the word patient endurance so that it would read like this. You have kept my word about my patient endurance. In other words, the the Philadelphians had been faithful to Jesus' teachings about his own example of perseverance, how he endured suffering and hardship and ultimately death on the cross without denying his God, right? It's better connected to Jesus' patient endurance. So, So Jesus promises to preserve or keep them, the Philadelphians, just as he persevered, just as he never denied the faith. Now, a lot also hangs on this word to keep here. Now, really briefly, this is the word tereo. It's the same word again, if you were with us when we were walking through the Gospel of John, that Jesus uses in John 17, 5, where, he, where Jesus prays, right? He prays that the Father would protect the church, excuse me, protect the church from the evil one. Not to take them out of the world, Jesus says, but to protect them. Protect them, see them through the pain, the suffering, and the persecution brought on our, by our enemy. This is, here in Revelation, this is not a promise of escape. This is a promise of protection. Jesus is promising to preserve the believers spiritually, to keep them from denying the faith. They are weak. They are weak, yes, but their Savior is strong. He is strong, and He will see them through, and He will see us through. Jesus makes the same promise to us. He will see us through. If another wave of COVID-19 comes through, we get shut down, we can't meet anymore, right? If, if we were to be thrown out on the street, barred from worshiping here or anywhere, if, if our neighbors grew hostile towards us because we are followers of Jesus, a real possibility, if that were to happen... Our Savior would see us through. That's the the promise of the protection that Jesus offers us this morning. In our weakness, Jesus promises that He will help us remain faithful. He'll protect us. But notice notice in verse 11 that we still bear responsibility in this. We're still called to persevere. This is what Jesus tells the Philadelphians there. Their persevering Savior is coming to them. By His Spirit, He's going to come and strengthen their weak hands, their feeble knees. Ultimately, at the end of time, He's going to come physically and and free them and all of God's people from suffering and sin. But they must persevere. They must persevere to the end, whether that be death or to when Jesus returns if they want to keep their crowns. Once again, Paul's helpful here because this is exactly what he warned the Corinthians of in 1 Corinthians 9. In verses 9 or verses 24 through 27, we, we see this idea of crowns. And crowns are for victors. They're for people who win, right? You don't get the crown if you don't win. And, and part of winning the race means that you actually have to finish the race. You have to make it across the finish line. So, so Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 9 that he subjects himself. He subjects his body to discipline so as not to be disqualified. Well, what's that discipline there? How is Paul disciplining himself? Paul understood that Jesus had won the victory, the race of salvation for him, but that he must make use of walking in that victory even now. He must discipline himself. He must make use of the ways that that God had given to him, that Jesus had given to him to walk in that victory with the Holy Spirit's help, right? With the truth of God's word as he was studying it, 
with the fellowship of the church as he was around other believers being challenged and encouraged. Paul and all of us, we must be on guard. We must persevere. We must be on guard against um, the false doctrine that we saw in Thyatira or the, the legalism that we talked about in Ephesus, the, the immorality that we saw at Pergamum. Jesus has won the race for us. There's no doubt about that. He has won the victory for us at Calvary, but we must finish the race that he started. We must finish the race if we're to keep our crowns. This brings us to the fourth promise that Jesus makes. It's the promise of stability. Verse 12, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again shall he go out of it. I don't know if you've, you've seen pictures of, of large uh, buildings, perhaps in, in Greece or in Athens, but in a, in a large building like a temple, the, the structural elements of the building are, are most of the times, they're the, they're the last things to be destroyed in the event of like an earthquake or something like that. Like, it takes a lot of power to, to move a foundation, to move one of these giant pillars that you might see um, in a picture of, of uh, the Parthenon or something like that. These, these structural elements like pillars and foundations, they, they support incredible loads. And it, it makes sense then, so when a, a natural disaster happens, like an earthquake, that these things would be the last things to, to crumble or fall. They're nearly impossible to move. They're so large. For a group like the Philadelphians who had been displaced by an earthquake and thrown out of the local synagogue, a promise of permanence and stability and that could hardly be understated, couldn't it? But this was more than steady ground, right? This was more than just um, stability in the physical sense. This was a, a promise of a permanent place in God's presence. In, in the Old Testament, the, the design of the tabernacle and the temple, Jesus said that he's going to make them a, a pillar in the temple of his God. The design of the tabernacle and the temple, it was filled with images of Eden, of gold, and flowers, and light, all pointing backwards to the garden when God dwelled with his people, when, when literally God walked in the cool of the day with Adam, right? Jesus is promising here a return to that stable ground of Eden when God actually walked and talked with his people. Jesus is promising that, that if we will hold fast to the end, that one day we will get to live in God's presence, and like unshakable pillars, Jesus is promising that once we're there, nothing will ever move us again. Did your life feel weak, shaky, seem unstable as if the very earth beneath your feet might give way and your entire life might just fall apart? I've felt that way before. And, and aren't these the moments, right? Aren't these the moments at our, at our weakest when the temptation to just walk away from following Jesus is the loudest, is the, is the strongest? Jesus promises us here an unshakable future in God's presence if we just hold on. Fifth and finally, Jesus promises the, steadfast, um, the steadfastness for the Philadelphians. He's going to, he's going to give them a new name, a, a sense of belonging, if you will. Listen to what he says in verse 12. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. The believers in Philadelphia, they must have felt like they didn't belong anywhere. They didn't have homes. 
The so-called uh, people of God in their city had completely disowned them, slammed the door in their face and kicked them out on the street. Right? Who would dare claim them, right? Poor, pitiable, and weak. You see, these folks, they understood more than most Jesus' words in Matthew 8, 20. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of God has nowhere to lay his head. But Jesus loves the poor. He, he loves the pitiable and the weak. He loves those who do not belong. And he, he delights in making them belong, in giving them a new name. Actually, three names, right? Three names. Jesus promises to them and to us that, that though we don't belong in this world, we, we don't find our home, our permanent dwelling place in this world, we have one in the next. And to prove it, Jesus is going to write upon us three names. He's going to write upon us the name of his God, the name of God's city, and Jesus' own new name. To the world we may seem like weak, unimportant, strange nobodies, but a day is coming when any and all doubts as to who we are, as to who we truly belong to, when all doubts about that will be removed forever. These, these five promises from Jesus to the Philadelphian believers, friends, they're some of the most encouraging words in the entire Bible. This is one of the most encouraging chapters in the entire Bible. They, they speak to us at our lowest, right? And, and they speak to the church around the world who faces persecution in ways that we can't even imagine, in ways far deeper to, than they do to us. Because we haven't had those experiences yet. They, they speak to us at our weakest and they remind us of the, the great power our Savior delights in displaying through our weaknesses. So, so, so what do we do with this, right? What do we do with these five promises? I, I like to do that. I, I want to give, every time we, we preach with this, Daniel and I, we both, we want to give you something to, to walk away with that you can, you can put your hands on. What are some, some takeaways from this passage? The first one is this. I don't have them on the screen this morning. Power outages made for an eventful weekend. But, but a couple of takeaways. First, is it not the temptation of all of us to distance ourselves from weakness? I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. To distance ourselves from weakness. Let me, show you, let me tell you what I mean. We, we don't like weakness in ourselves. Even though Jesus has promised to work power through weakness, we don't like weakness in ourselves. So it, it makes us uncomfortable to be near it makes us uncomfortable to be near weakness. We get uncomfortable when a, a brother confesses some secret sin to us. Or we get awkward when, with tears, a sister shares the great grief she's experienced because of tragedy, right? When someone is honest about their weakness, we get uncomfortable and awkward with it. Right? We, we balk at the request of some menial task, thinking that that's beneath us, right? I, I'm surely more powerful, more useful than that. We don't like weakness. But isn't this the mark of following our Savior? And the, the weakness through which He desires to display His great power? Shouldn't we draw near to weakness? Shouldn't we draw near to it to be quick to run to the aid with the brother who is struggling? Quick and not awkward to run to the sister who is suffering? Shouldn't we, we run towards weakness? This is, this is part and parcel of the gospel message. The, the same path that our Savior walked, I think we get it twisted sometimes. In this life, 
we're promised hardship and suffering and therefore weakness. And in the next life, power and glory. Second takeaway. What's what's clear from this text is that neither weakness nor power are accurate indicators of a church's successfulness. Instead, the the measure of success that we see here in this passage is, is actually faithfulness, right? Enduring to the end, remaining steadfast. Our church, we, we may never be any bigger than we are right now. We may never see more people come than what are here right now. We may, we may never be able to plan another church as we talked about this morning with TCC planning Christ Fellowship Eastside. We, we may never have a million dollar budget. We may never see God do an incredible work in our city and in our community. We may never see him do a great work of, of salvation amongst our friends and our neighbors. And then again, God may grant all of those things to us. He may give every single one of those things to us and other blessings and gifts of power that I can't even imagine. But in either power or weakness, we must remain faithful. That's the point here in this passage. We must remain faithful. Did we hold fast to the gospel? Did we remain faithful in our witness to the lost, whether we see anyone saved or not? Did we love our God and one another until the end, even when it was awkward and uncomfortable, right? If so, Jesus promises us a crown. Third takeaway. While while weakness cannot be relied upon as the sole indicator of success, right? We just said that. There's no doubt that Jesus delights in displaying his power through the weak, the small, and the seemingly insignificant. I mean, just think about Just think about the 12 men that he picked to go and start the church, right? The apostles, fishermen, a tax collector. These these guys were nobodies. They They were the weakest of the weak in their own cultures, right? Jesus delights in displaying his power through the weak. Therefore, we must never underestimate. We must never underestimate what God can do through a group of faithful people who persevere in weakness. We must never underestimate that. As is often said, we tend to overestimate what we can do um, in a year and vastly underestimate what can be done in 20 years of faithfulness. We vastly underestimate that. What might God be doing? What might he be willing to do if we persevere in the small things for the next 20 years, the next 30 years? 20 to 30 years of setting up chairs, let's just say, right? Everybody kind of got a little pit in their stomach when I said that one. 20 to 30 years of setting up chairs, right? Making coffee, changing diapers, driving unbelieving friends to doctor's appointments, picking up groceries for neighbors, or faithfully sharing the gospel with our coworkers. What might God be willing to do? Is this not? the primary way in which God has changed the world throughout history? Through the small, seemingly insignificant, weak efforts of men and women who bow their knee before a great and powerful God and commit to Him no matter the cost, no matter the price. In weakness or in power, May our King find each of us this morning. May He find each of us and forevermore faithful. Faithful in the things, whether they be big or small, weakness or power. 
Let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we, we confess that, that our view of the world needs to be drastically changed. You've made that abundantly clear to me this week. that the things that we look at and say, man, that's, that's powerful, that's successful, that's strong, are not necessarily the things that, um, that you would call powerful and strong. And so would you, uh, as we've been praying throughout this whole series, would you, would you open our eyes to the way that you see the world? Would you give us a glimpse of the world through heaven's eyes and how you delight in working incredible power through weak, small, insignificant men and women who will faithfully, steadfastly hold on to the gospel and do the things which you have called us to do. May we be a people who, uh, who work and live and minister in relative obscurity for the glory of your name. And then uh, give us the pleasure of dying as faithful men and women who then go to their reward and rejoice in the great work that our King Jesus has done. When the world sees us, Father, would they not see any of our own strength, our own ability, our own efforts to, to make things happen? Would they see a people who have bowed the knee before our great Savior, trusting that He is willing to work in us and through us, even in our weakness, for the sake of Your glory, for the sake of the nations? It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.